Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. So Grant, thank you very much for joining us for Bookable Space Audio Literary Salon. Well, thank you for making this possible. It is my pleasure. So can we, we'll just dive right in. And so I'm really curious, what inspired you to write Down in the Baroque? That is a long story, actually. So was, <laughs> I can keep it short. And, and my pronunciation is Barack. Barack. Like Barack Obama, but I came <laughs> up with it in 1979. So, oh, wow. <laughs> it's based on the word burial. It, in that year... I was writing a book for Doubleday, my first publication called Time's Fool, in which I created this city, which I never gave a name to, vaguely based on Savannah, Georgia, where I had just visited. And it's a city that has a big cliff going down to a river. And at the top of the cliff is where the middle class and upper class politicians and all the good people live. And then not down at the bottom of the cliff alongside the river. Is where all the working class people and those who are criminal class, the whole thing. Mm. And in Times Fool, it was mostly about the upper city with one visit to the Barack. And Pat Labruto, my editor at Dot Double Day, said, I should write a book about the Barack. And so I tried to do it and finally gave up. Mm. Uh, and I suspect part of it was because at that time I'd gotten involved with the theater world in Baltimore, very heavily involved. And I wrote a lot of plays, including ones about Shakespeare and one about Christopher Marlowe. And then about five or six years, late 70s, like late 80s, uh, my friend Tom Modiglione said, why are you writing all these plays? You ought to be writing fiction again. Mm. And slowly I got back into it. And one of the things that happened to me when I was writing those plays about Marlowe and Shakespeare was that I began to think that compare Elizabethan England to what we call here in the States, the psychedelic 60s. I think over there you call them the swinging 60s. <laughs> and uh, I got to think that if Christopher Marlowe were alive during the 60s, he wouldn't have been a playwright. He wouldn't have been a poet. He'd have been a rock star. So I started to write this book about these three musicians, vaguely based on Marlowe, Thomas Nash, and uh, Robert Greene. But of course, I needed a plot. And what happened eventually is I came up with a plot which, in which these, this group steals all this stuff from the Starship Laboratory, this big Starship being built overhead. And... Uh, then they get chased through the Barack. And meanwhile, the uh, musicians wind up getting 
some of that equipment, which allows them to get into the computer, city computers, and slowly everybody eventually comes together and everything falls apart. Uh, I love that it's a book that you came back to, to that it's a story that you return to. And with that in mind, could we hear a reading, please? Okay, this is the, the section where the uh, people break into the laboratory. Even though everything was going strictly according to plan so far, Casey George was worried. There were so many things that could go wrong, so many bits and pieces of information. A major piece could be wrong, but there was no turning back now. That choice had been made when they had abducted the scavenger truck. Slow down, Demon Pawn said. We'll get there too soon. We want to get there just after the first guard leaves. Right. Casey slowed down, even though every nerve in his body screamed to have this over and done with. The steering wheel felt strange through the skins that covered his body. When they finally reached the lab, Demon Pawn got into the waste container, and Casey and Marsh wheeled it out of the truck into the lab. As they had been promised, only one guard was on duty. He waved them through, and Casey released the breath he hadn't realized he had been holding. They turned the corner and were hidden from the guard, but not from the ever-present cameras. They stopped the container in front of an electronics closet and stopped to wipe their brows. Meanwhile, Demon Pawn crawled out of the side panel of the container into the closet and closed the door behind him. Casey and Marsh continued on until they reached the director's laboratory. Casey pressed a button on the mini quarter he held in his palm. Open, it said. ID, please, the lock asked. Casey pressed the lock with his thumb and forefinger. It seemed minutes before the lock finally released and the door opened slightly. Casey let go of another breath. The skins had worked. They should. It had cost enough. They entered the lab, having no way of knowing if Demon Pawn had successfully put the cameras into a loop. Put anything that looks interesting in the bin, Casey said to Marsh. With the help of the skins, the mini quarter, and the password he'd been given, he quickly was into the guts of the director's computer. So far, all the information they'd been given was correct. He inserted the worm drive. It was knowledge they were interested, not hardware. It seemed to take hours, but the computer's contents were quickly downloaded, and his timer had not beeped when it was done. Marsh was standing there looking fearfully at the camera. I had to leave space for Pawn, he said. Let's cover our tracks and go pick him up. They two other, took two other bags out of the container, ripped them up open, and spread their contents all over the lab. Marsh laughed at the sight. Casey checked his timer. Let's go. As they pushed the container around the door, a cleaning machine turned the corner and came up behind them, spreading disinfectant on the floor and lowered walls and wiping everything up, leaving the walls and floor clean and spotless behind it. Perfect. And they picked up Pawn, passed the guard, and returned to their stolen vehicle. As they drove away, the other car was returning to its post. What did we do now? March asked. Did you copy everything? Pawn asked. Everything. Then let's dump the rest of the stuff at Kendallis Reclaimers. Their scavenger will be picking it up in a couple of hours, and it'll be melted to slag before they have time to trace it. With any luck at all, they never know why we really broke into the lab. When they reached Condales Reclaimers, a man came out of the shadows. And while Casey and Marshall dumped the hardware into the trash container, Pawn walked over to give him the worm drive, and the man drifted back into the shadows from which he had come. As they drove away, a great sadness came over Casey. 
as he realized what was probably the greatest adventure of his life was coming to an end. Oh, wow. What wonderful world building. I feel like you just like dropped us into this world and we're like, it's, it's, we're immediately gripped by tension and we want to know what's going to happen next. It's all like say, our, our world today. You know, there's really not much in there. It's science fiction other than that the stuff is being going to go to a starship. Oh, wow. kind of stuff you could find in any laboratory. Maybe. <laughs> but I like how you said oh, it's only other than it's going to a starship. Like <laughs> most of us have don't don't have experience with starships. <laughs> <laughs> None of like, us have experience with starships, really. <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but you know. So you know what? So I'm really curious about what sort of research did you do to write this book? Actually, not a lot, because this is using a lot of science fiction staples, which I've been reading for. Well, by the time I read, wrote this, I've been reading for about 40 years, mm. 30 years. Don't make it worse than it is, Karen. Yeah. Um, but of course, I did, a, I did a lot of research on the Shakespeare and Marlowe novels, which was very interesting to me. Not because of the information, because I knew nothing about doing that kind of research. My mm. degrees are in mathematics, not in English. It's a completely different world. Mm. And the one thing I found that, that Surprised me. I did the one about Shakespeare. I just read books about Shakespeare, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> then I did the ones about Marlowe. And suddenly I found that things that in the Shakespeare books said Marlowe had done, they're not in the Marlowe books. <laughs> Even sometimes when they're written by the same guy. And it just gets, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> so I realized I had to research every single character, Elizabethan character. And one of them is a guy by the name of Poli, who, according to, to the Marlowe books, was a major spy for Sir Francis Walsingham. What just so happened, the Pratt Library in Baltimore had this two-volume book on Sir, Francis, Sir Francis Walsingham, about a thousand pages each in small oh print. Wow. So I went in and I got it and I went, looked in the index, which is about four or five hundred pages long. <laughs> And looked at Polly. He gets one paragraph. <laughs> this guy was supposed to be one of his major spies. Gets one paragraph. But I used it that way anyway, because if you're nobody but me, will ever know it. <laughs> oh my goodness, I love that. <laughs> and and in in this book, Polly appears. I used about half of the characters are based on uh, Elizabethan characters, and most of the others are based on theater people that I knew most. In fact, most of the characters, this would be the characters, are also based on actors who played those characters. And that's, you know, sad. But as far as research, about the only thing I did was research how you would build a starship that's out there. You know, because if you, you're putting a jackhammer on it and putting it, if that, you, there's a recall, you're going to wind yourself in Saturn in about 10 minutes. <laughs> so I, I had to deal with that. And there was... You know, there are bits and pieces here and there, but basically it's all about standard science fiction tropes as well as my knowledge of living, because they say this is this world that's, that I've created. You say it's a great world, but it's, it's not a, really a science fiction. It's very much like the world we live in today as wow. far as what was in there. Well, the other science fiction part of it is really is that these kids, these musicians, wind up going into the computer, <laughs> the city computer. <laughs> I, th- I think that must be quite uh, quite exciting. I guess 
I'm excited by the things that you would see if you went into a computer, like just the possibilities. Like yeah, again, quite endless. And again, that's the thing that you see it a lot in science fiction. And and I can add things to it because I that's how I've spent my life working with the big iron computers, not these little ones that we're on. <laughs> so I, I know and I got pretty much into the guts of computers, not not hardware, but software. Because I was lucky to get a job where I was modifying the programs that computers use to make their programs. Mm. Like, like what is it on Microsoft? They have a the screen that you go on. Mm. Things. And I would have been the guy who had been rewriting that program to read what you read and put in the pictures. And, wow. and it was, and I was getting down to, I thought I was getting down to a pretty good level. Then I took a course in computer science and I thought I, I hadn't even cut the surface. <laughs> I did wonder how much of your own, because you've had, um, a really cool career. And, um, and I saw Goddard on there and I'm like, Oh my goodness. And I, so I did wonder about how much of your, like your work life made its way into your fictional world. Most of the stuff that oh my, but a lot of stuff that I've written has been about musicians, even before I knew anything about them. And, uh, <laughs> a lot of them about time travel and, uh, in my stories, when somebody goes back in time, they wind up creating what is their future? <laughs> this one doesn't have time travel in it, neither does time spool. Well, none of my novels do, but a lot of my short stories do. Mm. Could we have another reading, please? Okay, let's see what I've got here. Uh, <laughs> this, I can't even explain what goes up to it. <laughs> but I think it works by itself. Okay. Now, with two of the musicians. Okay. As they walk through Westmeet toward the oyster, Red babbled on about how great it would be if they could perform at Cannibal Soup. It was all Kip could do to keep from laughing out loud at him. No, he didn't need to perform at all. Not much he didn't. And then he saw her. Kip could have sworn it was the same woman he had seen met so briefly at the money marriage, turning the corner as he and Red approached the oyster. Red was already inside the oyster's doorway before he realized that Kip hadn't followed him and was staring at something down the street. Hey, what's the matter with you? Nothing. I just, uh, I just remembered. I got to see someone. You got to see someone. Who the hell you got to see? No one you know. Bullshit. I know everyone you know and lots more besides. You just get light in the head. Flight like flight. I'll be right back. That's all Kip could do to keep from run, running after the girl. He turned the corner and there she was a full block ahead of him and going straight. She was probably heading for the main street out of Westgate. What could he do? He couldn't just go up to her behind her and grab her shoulder and say, hey, remember me? Well, maybe he could. She did seem to like him, but he wasn't sure. He couldn't afford to take the chance. He hated to lose sight of her again, but he couldn't see that he had any choice. He dodged down an alley. Now he could run without her turning around to see him. He tripped over some trash, knocking debris over with a clatter, sprawling and scraping his elbows and knees, only to pick himself up immediately. He had to get in front of her somehow, make it all seem an accidental meeting. His breath came in great gulps. He simply wasn't used to this. It had been a long time since he and Red had raced away from the squids. He stopped just before he got back to the main street, brushed on his clothes, swept his hair back with his hands, and stepped out of the alley just as the girl was turning the corner. He started toward her. What could he say that wouldn't sound stupid? But she ain't been recognizing. 
Of course she would. She had seen him on stage, the money marriage. And she still, she looked at him and he couldn't miss the sign of recognition. The little jolt as she stopped in her tracks and her mouth fell open just a little bit. Kip grinned. Hi, we meet again. She smiled back at him. Then this is another section. I'll continue on with this scene. A young man, several years older than Kip, his face already gray and lined, shambled past the muttering smoke, smoke. Dozens of dreams and fantasies, but still Kip did not know what to do. Show this girl around the barack? And she lived her all her life just like him? What was there to show her in the point that was worth seeing? The three-story building where he and Red and Flight had first performed? It was abandoned now, falling in upon itself, full of tepid, foul pools of standing water, rats and vermin, and the remnants of countless furtive assignations left behind to rot and decay. The smell of the river was stronger here and the noise level higher, but the people living here didn't seem to care. They seemed no different from anyone else in the barrack, except for a gang of young men who paid no attention to Bluebird and Kip. This section of the barrack was a maze, streets blocked for no apparent reason, temporary ramshackle buildings erected at the end of a block, piles of trash in the alleys, their smell mixing with that of the river. Rotting roofs showed fire-blackened beams. Archways were fast, festooned with laundries on lines. Trucks careened down the pitted roads, rattling loudly as they swerved and swayed at corners. Peddlers loudly proclaimed the quality of their wares to women in embroidered dresses, while old men, and some not-so-old men, mumbled in doorways, sometimes reaching out a hand to a passerby. There's really not much to see down here, she said at last. There's really not much to see anywhere, she replied. Kip lifted the meager strands of wire by a faded no trespassing sign, and they walked past an abandoned warehouse or factory with rusted metal rollback doors, crumbling mortar surrounded an odd-shaped stone at its base. They walked out on a decaying pier. Buildings around them cast great greasy shadows on the oily water. There was music in the wind that whistled like a wand over the river. Waves made a passing river cleaner, by made by a passing river cleaner, crashed against the walls that protected the building's basements. They sounded like the simulated symbols of flight's keyboards. The calls of the other person's seagulls were like single notes falling from Kip's altar, and the grinding of the river cleaners were like red-greens gyrations in front of an audience. Oh, Lord, isn't that a baby? Startled, he looked toward where Luby was pointing and laughed. No, it's just dial, see? The tide had turned. Turned it so that an empty socket was revealed where there'd been an arm. I thought it was real, she said, in a shaky voice. Do you come here often? Come here often? I live here. No, I mean to this pier. Not often, not anymore. We used to come here when we were little kids and me, me and Red and Flight. And it was tighter then. The fence was solid and you had to crawl under it down there where the shore falls away. One mistake and you could wind up in the river. Did you? Me? No, I never did. I came close a couple of times. Red always saved me at the last moment. Red went in a couple of times in flight. Well, he's smart, but he does not always the most graceful thing around him. He went in a lot. What's your name? Bluebird, she said in an almost inaudible voice. That's an AK, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, look, I'm not meaning to pry, okay, but you know, some people have very strange names, like Red Green. 
hey, that's real, you know. I mean, the green is his. And the red part, well, just look at him. Sure, I understand. Kip Martin's for real, too. Fight, he's the only one of us gone for AK so far. I don't know why. Red, he don't really care, I guess. Or maybe he's proud. Maybe he likes being red-green, I guess. And you? Too much trouble. I'm Kip. I've always been Kip. I don't see any reason to change. So, I got reasons. Lots of reasons. I changed so much best, I don't feel like Bluebird anymore. Hey, that's okay. How does canary sound to you? You like birds, huh? Why not sparrow? Sparrows don't sing. Are you trying to tell me you're a singer? Kip tried to remain calm. And I thought maybe she wasn't really interested in him. was just trying to get into the band. That's what's been happening for the last year. I've been learning how to sing. So you used to be a bluebird and now you're a canary? I've never heard either of them sing. Neither have I. I have one last question that I get to ask. I've been telling myself I'm going to be good in just three questions. And then I, I make them like really long with conjunctions. <laughs> I love asking questions. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. So I'm going to let you choose the which one. Um, so one of them is either, what was something interesting that you learned while researching that did not make it into the book? Because I feel like there's always something that a writer is like, oh, wow, did you know that the whatever was invented in 1308? And they just like, <laughs> but it has no bearing on the story, so they can't put it in. I can't remember anything. No, I'm sorry. No, that's great. Then the other one is for advice. For So there will be writers who are listening. And so you've written f- over 40 short stories. Well, and, I've written a lot more, but they've uh, been published. So you've written more and you pub- have published 40 or 50, and it's incredible. And so what advice would you give writers? I talk to a lot of writers who say that it's really a struggle to get short stories published. And what advice would you give? Because clearly it's possible. Well, first of all, I can't speak for internet magazines. Okay. They're a different bag. When I was there, it was all paper magazines. And one thing I learned was that if you want to get published in a paper magazine, you want a very short story. Because mm-hmm. what happens is when they put the magazine together, they usually have a fixed number of pages that the magazine is. And they got all these stories from that are well-known writers. And usually there's a hole in there. And it's a small hole. It can be three or four pages, maybe even 10 in some cases. So if you've got a, so when they see a short story that they like at all, they're going to think, can I put this in, in my group of stories that we pull from when we need something to, to fill a hole? So to, the best chance you have to get published in a paper magazine is to write something that's about somewhere between five and 10 pages. Okay. That is great advice. Because you know, I know that there are it writers. Still has to be good stories. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> good point. So five to ten good pages. <laughs> but that's excellent advice. So before we roll out, could we have one final reading? I could. I love hearing you read. But if we could have one final reading before we go, that would be lovely. Full cool voice. It seems to be hoarse today. I don't know why. <clears throat> Okay, I'm not going to explain what goes into this one either. Okay. Uh, but we start out with Scarus, who I went to, and I, which I spell differently from the way it is in, in the Marlowe books about Marlowe. Okay. Nick Scarus was uh, at, at the point, was at the Mistress Bull's Tavern when Marlowe was killed. This has nothing to do with him, it's just the name. Scarus was on Kip's trail. 
he wouldn't be hampered as long as or slowed down by the woman anymore. So he, it wouldn't take him long to catch up with them. There was no time to waste. Red jumped out the window onto the back of the bouncer. The jolt knocked Scaris to the ground. And Red thought he felt something break, a rib probably, and he had the wind knocked out of him. But he had no time to worry about that. Scaris was getting up again. Red grabbed a piece of brick and smashed it against the back of the bouncer's head. Scaris pitched forward on his face and lay still, a trickle of bright red blood coming from where Red had hit him. Now Red had time to get his breath, but the pain in his chest made it difficult each time he tried to inhale. By the time he was able to get his breath back without much pain, Flight had climbed down from the second floor. You didn't kill him, did you, Red? Nah, I doubt it. He's got a hard head. He'll be okay when he comes around tomorrow. He's going to be hurting, and he's really going to have a grudge against us now. Check him out. Gingerly, Flight checked the bouncer. He guess he's okay. He's breathing. His heart's beating okay. Doily poked his head over a bottle break. I thought I saw you kids. What you up to, Red? Doily, just the man I want to see you. That sounds like bad news. See ya. Come here. Doily grinned and climbed over the pile. While not as burly as Scaris, he probably could have done better against him in a fight than Red, even allowing for the fact that one of his arms had amputated at the elbow. You got something for me, kid? Yeah, I want you to watch it for me. They totally looked out at Scaris' in it from, oh, Lord, you really got yourself into trouble this time, didn't you? You're really in trouble now, and there ain't no way I can help you. All I want you to do is just keep him from following Kip. Sure, me and what army? You may not like living too much, kid, but I still do. Count me out. Hey, look, I'll owe you big, I promise. Sure. We've both, we both have a price on us. How long am I going to collect when I'm lying in a ditch somewhere with my skull split open? Toilet looked down at Scaris again. Boy, how'd you do that to him, kid? You know, something I don't know. Red lifted the piece of it. Oh, shit, man. You cheated. That's not fair. It's what you taught me, Doily. Sure, but you don't look shit, do shit like that to guys like Scaris. You'll have your ass fried three ways from Sunday. Look, he's after Kip. Can you help us? What are you going to be doing while I'm getting the shit beat out of me? Catch up with Kip and protect him. What's he need protection for? Scaris is after him. Why? He's got a tough woman. That don't compute, Red. Scaris don't get serious about women. I think he was supposed to protect her or something. Okay, okay. I'll stay here and talk with Mr. Scaris. I'd rather tangle with him than someone or something he's supposed to be protecting someone from. Doily looked down again at the scarce of stuff on. I think. I ain't going to put my ass to sleep for you. I'll slow him down a little. But that's all I promise. Oh, thank you so much. Before we let you go, can you tell us where should readers buy the book? Okay, all my books, there are three novels and a collection, all science fiction. It's available from Brief Candle Press in... Beaverton, Oregon. So if you do Brief Candle Press, you'll find their website there. I think there's also Brief Candle Publishers in New Jersey. Oh. So <laughs> that can be confusing. Brief Candle Press of Oregon. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you for being our guest. And thank you for the readings and for talking to us about the books and also for the advice that I know. I don't know about everyone else, but I'm certainly going to be taking it. So thank you so much. Okay, well, thank you for making this possible for all of us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. 
I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on why I write Battlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more.